0: Please turn to James chapter 2. We're still in James, and we're going to be here for a while. We're talking about the sin of partiality. And as a subtitle, I've got genuine faith responding to social distinctions, because we're in James chapter 2, 1 through 13. And last week... I explained that in the past decades, the church has undergone a subtle but well-documented theological shift away from the Bible to social issues. And the primary emphasis has now changed from the biblical mandate for pastors and church leaders from evangelism and teaching God's word to the work of alleviating social injustice. It's everywhere present. It's, it's common. And I don't think it's wrong for me as your pastor to try to alert you to what's all around us because it's having a, an effect in many churches. Such an emphasis did not work back in the 40s and 50s with the social gospel invading the main denominations. In fact, it was a death knell to most of those main denominations back in the 1940s and 1950s. They apostatized. They nominalized out and stopped teaching the Word of God and promoting evangelism. Many younger college age and 30-somethings have become disheartened by what some of the more vocal ones will say is do-nothing Christianity. Churches that are not woke, churches that are not engaged in the social programs that they espouse, are considered to be do-nothing Christianity because you're just sitting and studying God's word and, and trying to do evangelism as, as best you can. They're passionate to make a difference in the world and they need to be commended for that, I think. But younger evangelicals became more concerned about the poor and about digging wells and about sex trafficking and about orphans than at any other time In recent history, you have to go back to the social gospel to see this kind of a thrust. And that didn't turn out well. These needs are exceedingly distressing, and everyone with even the least bit of humanity should be concerned for poor, sex trafficking, the injustices that are around. I'm not denying that things like this exist. But the question is, is that the main emphasis of the Bible, and is that the mission of the church, to alleviate that from the world? That's the question. In more recent days, let's say 2017 till maybe the present, the social justice of caring about the poor and sexually exploited, while still a crushing and present need, became the emphasis And it has become increasingly more racially charged. It's moved from just dealing with the poor and those that are downtrodden or oppressed, if you will, to become a very, very racially charged situation. Black Lives Matter's movement came into great prominence and received a larger-than-life voice after the horrific murder of George, George Floyd. I mean... It's right here, Minneapolis people. Do you you realize we're on national news at least once or twice a week with the things that are taking place just across the river? What a uh, movement, what that movement and those who promoted it did was to take that until then a little-known philosophy, at least to the person in the pew, the person on the street, They took that philosophy that was really little known by the common man, and like an old tarnished lamp, they dusted it off and they shined it all up, and they began to shout about the philosophy from the rooftops, and that's critical race theory. What is known as CRT, and you might have heard about it, the parents over in Virginia are just railing against CRT in the schools, and and they're facing huge opposition by the union for teachers there. And although it was just simmering under the noses of parents of grade school children and blatantly out in the open in the academy, it's been in our colleges and universities for years. I remember marching at the uh, 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. I took a bus from Minneapolis uh, with the Students for a Democratic Society, which is a communist organization. This is before I was saved. Before I, <laughs> I mean, I was just a, a mere youth at the time. But we met, gathered together down at Madison, uh, that, that stalwart conservative school, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And, I mean, it's been taught for many, many years in the schools, and many of the teachers that are coming out of those schools now are teaching our children. So CRT became the rallying cry of all who were previously and who remained passionate about social and economic equality. All those quote-unquote do-gooders in the church that were accusing those that were teaching God's Word and doing evangelism of do-nothing Christianity, now they're getting embroiled in CRT because it kind of just fit right in with them. And it got hijacked, okay, big time. It really, really did. And it infused race into the equation. Now, a, a I'm going to give you a short history of CRT. Bear with me. I am not a sociologist. I'm not an expert. But you can study this stuff anywhere if you want to study it. And CRT is very important to understand. It's so prevalent in our culture today that you can trace its history easily. And it would be similar to this. You'll find these components in the history of how we got to CRT today. CRT is inseparable to Marxism. It's kind of linked at the hip with Marxism, which quite simply represents the idea that the oppression and injustice and inequality of capitalism must be replaced with a more just and equitable and inclusive system, namely socialism. That's the undergirding the the foundation of CRT. And here's where it all began. In 1923... Until around 1933, CRT, we find, is just the latest manifestation of something that was taking place, promoted by Marxists, in Germany. Originally, in 1923, there were a group of philosophers in Germany and scholars that sought to see culture at large change through a Marxist lens, and they studied this out. They established the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, it's also known as the Frankfurt School, if you want to get into all this stuff. And what they called it then at that time was critical theory. Critical theory, CT, okay? It was headed up by a group of white Marxist scholars who applied Marxism to mass culture by studying how the inadequacy and inequality of the capitalist system for culture can be bettered through applying. Marxism to it. That's the, the basis of where CRT has come from. But in 1933, the Nazis got in a way and kind of screwed things up for them. And so guess what? They moved the school, the Institute for Social Research, they moved it to the United States, Columbia University, where it is still present to this day. And Columbia University is another one of those like the University of Wisconsin at Madison. It's a stalwart school of conservatism. It it is the, the most liberal, communistic, Marxist school and training and promoting that philosophy of government, I think, in the world. 1970, that Institute for Social Research and... Critical theory kind of gave way to something called critical legal studies. We're seeing the progression here. Now, the Institute began studies on impact, the impact of legal jurisprudence or legal systems on black people in America. That was their area of study, and that's why they changed it from critical um, theory to critical legal studies. And it was still headed up by a bunch of white guys, Neo-Marxists all, but their field of study moved into racial disparity and equalities. And it promoted legal equality for black Americans, but through a Marxist model of equality and justice. Marxism is still present. The model presented was that equality was gained through not owning anything. That's socialism, basically. That is the equality of Marxism and Socialism. And then from critical theory to critical legal studies, eventually in 1989 there was a group of predominantly black legal scholars that gathered together in all places, University of Wisconsin, Madison. Now they were out of that school from Columbia and they came out of there and they were under the conviction that the critical legal studies movement didn't go far enough in securing equity for black people in America. And being black, they had something to say about that, right? Identity. They were part of a group. And it was not radical enough to impact the larger culture with their Marxist philosophy, and so they began to establish what has come to be called critical race theory. Now, critical race theory, or CRT, Has one and only one underlining presupposition, and this is it. Racism is the normal and common everyday experience of all people of color in America. In fact, our entire nation is based upon racism. You might have heard this if you listen to the news, or certain news, (laughs) or go to DuckDuckGo, or whatever. You have to look for this stuff. You may have heard the term systemic racism, right? That's what this is talking about. And all this terminology is Marxist and socialist, and it's just all intertwined. You see, a public affairs and critical race theory department at UCLA comes right out and says this, quote, CRT Or critical race theory recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive. Did you hear what that just said? You don't have to point to an individual racist to have racism, it was already ingrained in our society from the very beginning of our American experiment. This is, um, you note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture, which would be anybody that's not black is white, okay? The white dominant culture. This is the analytical lens that CRT, critical race theory, uses in examining existing power structures. Power structures is a buzzword for, Socialism, Marxism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's all about power groups, groups that have power. And you come to what I was talking about last week, the oppressors and the oppressed. They go on to explain that the power structures that they're speaking of are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. This stuff's for real. And it's not Jenny come lately some harebrained idea that some radicals just sat and thought through. This has been brewing for years. And this isn't a political sermon because it is right where James chapter 2, 1 through 13 is. Because with those groupings that you have of the oppressed and the oppressors, you're talking about partiality and the church should not have any of that. In fact we should be the beacon of hope of impartiality and truth and justice and fairness. And we'll get to that when we get to the text. Let me give you an example. That kind of thinking that I just talked about, that kind of thinking led to this very, very sad answer to a very honest question posed to a 20-something black woman who was speaking at the 2019 uh, Crew Conference. Crew is uh, the new name for um, Campus Crusade for Christ. They changed her name to Crew. There was an older white woman um, that had sat through the conference, and the dominant theme of that conference in 2019, I think it was in Minneapolis actually, the dominant theme was social justice and how can we, you know, really get on board with this and everything. And so it's all composed of college students, and then they have the speakers, and one of the speakers was a 20-something black woman, and she was speaking, and then they had a Q and a time, and this older white woman, I'd say she was about 50, maybe a little bit older, during the Q&A, she went up to the mic, she was very soft-spoken, um, somewhat trembling voice, and, and she just, she was nervous, you know, and she just said, my family is from Ohio. And I have done ancestry studies all the way back in our family line. And there is no slavery at all or anything even close to any mention of anything to do with slavery in our family line going back generations. And her voice is really quivering now. She's almost in tears, getting pretty emotional. And she went on she said, I I just don't know. I, I, I don't know with everything that you've been saying about white privilege, you know, I I guess I just wonder, when is my being sorry going to be enough? Well, I mean, my heart's going out to this woman. I I watched it online, and I'm thinking, poor lady, I just wanted to console her. The young woman that she was addressing answered this quickly. She answered it very quickly. There was not a, a pause in her answer. Maybe your family was not involved in slavery, I can understand that, but you benefited as a white person off the backs of black slaves and their labor. That was her answer. How can two people ever be together in friendship if they're members of inherently opposed power groups, black and white, rich and poor, liberal and conservative? Well, I've got an answer for that. The gospel. The gospel people. You see, there were no greater disparate groups than the Jew and the Gentile, but in Ephesians 2.14 we read, for he, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace. Who made both groups, huh, there were groups back then too. And they hated each other, man. The Gentiles hated the Jews and the Jews wouldn't even eat off a plate or walk They'd see a Gentile coming, they'd go across to the other side of the road. They loathed them, called them dogs. So there was great disparity. But he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that was there. That's Jesus. That in himself, he might make the two into one new person and establish peace. You want peace between black and white? Preach the gospel. You want peace between the rich and the poor? Preach the gospel. Read the little book Philemon. That talked about a slave and his master. And Paul gives directions. Onesimus, what he should do in a situation with his slave coming back to him. There were slaves and there were masters in the first century church, worshiping God together. That was the power of the gospel in evidence in the peace that they experienced with one another. The middle wall partition being broken down. You may wonder why I'm speaking about all this stuff and why so philosophical or sociological? And why delve into such matters like this? Well, because this is partiality in our day. We don't have the Greek and the, the Gentile versus the Jew partiality. We have people groups. We have ethnic groups against ethnic groups. We have social economic dis- disparities. That's all the inequalities that you hear about. And this is the unrighteous judgment that one group of people is superior to another group of people and has to get that group of people to be nicer to them and so that they're equal with them. And in the case of CRT, it's due to being an ancestor of oppressed black slaves, which according to CRT is the inequality upon which our entire nation was built and has sustained itself and is today continuing to oppress the people of color That is, white privilege gained through the oppression of black people or people of color and what is perpetuated in in a capitalist way of life. God's word concerning this is expressed clearly in James 2, 1 through 13. So I want you, when you read through that, read through it and just interject. Instead of rich and poor, put black and white. Folks... The gospel is the answer. Christ is always the answer. And just in, by way of review, before we get into the new text, let me remind you of the three underlying root issues when looking at partiality. One, it's a heart problem. It's not the color of skin problem or a socio-economic problem. It's a heart problem. When partiality is the basis of a complaint, it is more a matter of the heart. Than of any outward behavior or ethnic background or social response to either. Secondly, with partiality, there's always only two groups the oppressed and the oppressors. In all partiality, back in in James' day, the oppressed and the oppressors. The oppressors in James' example are the rich, okay, and they're oppressing the poor. In CRT, it's people are assumed to be in one of only two categories. They're either the oppressed or the oppressor. Those terms have their root in a political philosophy of Marxism in our day and age. And partiality is a foundation and pillar in the discussion of oppression, where you hear disparity, inequalities, social injustices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera you will immediately know, immediately, that there are two groups, the oppressed and the oppressor. Always, always. Now, third point. The loss of personal responsibility is due to the group identities of oppressed and oppressors. It's a matter of one group against another. Whenever the categories of oppressor and oppressed surfaces, the element of victimization comes in. The oppressed are victimizing the oppressed. The oppressor is victimizing the oppressed. And they become victims of that other group that's doing this to them. Okay, And in today's context, the CRT and Marxist philosophy, the victim has been raised to the highest level of recognition and becomes a champion. It's kind of of like... Let's tell the story of the fall of man from Genesis chapter 3 and make the serpent... The champion okay that's what it's kind of like it, it's take it takes truth and just turns it on its head. if you're a victim of multiple oppressions to the degree and number of oppressed classifications you can claim, that is the height of your recognition and your deserved recompense, okay so if you're a black person, that's one area that you are oppressed in because You're marginalized because you're black. If you're a woman, that is another because of the patriarchy that's out there. And men rule, right? White men rule. So you're black and you're a woman. Then throw in the LGBTQ plus situation. You're a lesbian. You're marginalized because you're a lesbian. So you're black, you're a woman, and you're a lesbian. Let's kick it up another notch. You're a single mom. And you're unemployed. Well, listen, sister, you're at the top of the rung, man. You are now the hero. And you are due recompense for all that oppression. That's called intersectionality. It's another term that's very current at the time. It's at the intersection of all those oppressive qualifications that makes your claim strongest. Another thing to keep in mind is that with victimization, there is always a laying aside of personal responsibility. Now, we're going to get into that today. Just be patient when we talk about the poor. Because there are categories of poor. Did you know that? (laughs) There are pious poor, but there are disobedient poor. There are different categories of poor. And CRT blows right past that. And when you get the oppressed and oppression or oppressed, and the oppressors, you blow right past the various categories. It's just two big, large groups, and you fit in one or the other. So our topic at hand okay, is James 2, and it's very contemporary. And what I want you to understand is what James was getting at is faith in relationship to social distinctions. The social distinctions he was pointing out were that between the rich and the poor, and for some strange reason the people in the assembly were deferring to the rich at the expense of the poor. That's what was happening here. And he's calling them out on it. And he's telling them, this cannot be in the church. It just can't be. So last week we looked at the rebuke against partiality in verses two, uh, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. He gives a command, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't judge people. Don't be partial towards people with an attitude of favoritism, which only looks on the external circumstances like rank and appearance and wealth or ethnicity. Secondly, we learned that the contrast is clear. Judging with partiality is set against genuine faith. Look at, look at the text, chapter 2. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's saying, this doesn't gel with your profession of faith. You're not acting like a Christian by doing this. Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives a, a, a case study in verses 2 through 4. And it's a, a study in partiality given as an illustration to drive home the point the assembly he's talking about is is talking about a grouping of christians a local church if you will and he says somebody comes in there well look at it verse two for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my foot. <laughs> There's so many comparisons going on here and contrasts. It's just fun. The rich man is the one with the... Ringed fingers. He's got gold rings all over his fingers. And it's a social and economic identity that's given here. And it's distinguished by his external look of rings, gold rings, and, and, and fine clothes. And then you've got the poor man, and he's got dirty clothes on, or stinky clothes. We don't know what that's like here, really. We really don't. In Indonesia, we do. <laughs> because there would be people that come into a fellowship like that. They'd be hard day laborers, maybe the guys that pull the the garbage carts or the guys that ride the pedicabs or whatever. They're poor, salt-of-the-earth people. But they're right next to a Chinese rich man who owns a company. Can they worship together? If they're both believers, if they understand their position in Jesus Christ, the answer is absolutely yes. Are they equal? Not on an economic structure, not on a social structure but they are in Christ. Everybody is level at the foot of the cross. That's why the gospel is so wonderful. Our affinity is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And we build affinities even within our own churches, our little groups, right? On those social structures, on those ethnic diversity backgrounds or whatever, on music. Can you believe it? I mean, just a few years ago, the kind of music we're playing today is like anathema, all the old people would leave. Okay? Or if we do a hymn, most of the young people are like, ah, what's that about? Well, we'd just try to do both <laughs> to retain all of you. So if we play a contemporary song that hurts your ears, just stay for a second. We'll play a hymn somewhere along the line. So, and vice versa, okay? What, what's the problem with that? Was it the musical forms? That were the problem? Was it that contemporary music sucks and you know, <laughs> traditional hymns are great? No, it was people's hearts. They were hating each other in their hearts. You see what I mean? It, it goes to the heart whenever you've got partiality, it's always the heart. So you've got this contrast between these two, and partiality is observed. They're paying special attention. Sit here in a good place contrast it with what they told the poor man stand over there or sit at my footstool okay so the contrast is there to behave with such partiality is to expose something and this is where James is so bold he says you're evil you're sinning (laughs) wow how to make friends right It was injurious and destructive and vicious the way they were treating each other and it wasn't in keeping with the character and nature of the one that they claimed as Savior. So I want to read verses 5 through 11 right now because this is a new section that we want to get to today. Listen, my beloved brethren, James says. Did not God choose a poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal uh, law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And he just said, by being partial, you're a transgressor of the law. Wow. He is it. He's just lowering it down on them, big time. So, James points out three inconsistencies in that passage of Scripture that result from their partiality. I'm going to give them to you all at once right now, and then I'm going to go back and break them down. The first inconsistency is that partiality is inconsistent with the character of God. Partiality is inconsistent with the character of God. Secondly, partiality is inconsistent with their faith. That's what James told them. This is not... What believers do. Thirdly, partiality is inconsistent with the royal law. And we're going to talk about that. So let's pray as we go to the word. Father God, we thank you for your word that is so clear and so applicable to our circumstances today. Father, help us to make the connection so that we will not be partial. In the way that we behave towards one another. And Father, that partiality goes way beyond just the black and white scenario that we're facing today with CRT. Uh, it, can, it can be really, really easy to drop into partiality when it comes to families with children as opposed to older families that have grown children. It can come between those who are single and those who are married. It can come between the young and, and the old, Lord. Father, there's so many pitfalls that we can fall into and become partial, which your word says is evil. Lord, protect us and let us just focus on Christ who has gained our peace through his body, through his flesh on the cross, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. So these inconsistencies, he starts out with listen. Listen. Well, here's a... Chance to put into practice the very thing that James just taught them in verse 19 of chapter 1. Let everyone be quick to hear. So he's saying, listen, I've got something to say. And the first thing he says is that the character and nature of God is not partial. Okay, that's an inconsistency. Partiality does not fit with the character and nature of God. In Deuteronomy 10.17 we read, For Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And get this who does not show partiality? (laughs) He just front loads the whole verse with how awesome God is, and he finishes it off by saying he's not partial. Doesn't show favoritism. Very important. Turn to Leviticus 19 with me. I want you to see this. Leviticus 19. What time does the game start this afternoon? <laughs> I'm just looking at my notes where I am. Okay, uh, Leviticus 19 and verse 14. We'll read verse 14 and following. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before a blind man, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Just those two verses. It's very interesting. If, if you are cursing a deaf man, guess what? You're taking advantage of him because he can't hear you. Right? He can't hear you. If if you place a stumbling block in front of a blind person, you're taking advantage of that person because he's going to stumble because he can't see it. In contrast, you shall revere or reverence your God. So taking advantage of a deficiency of another person in order to gain something from them is not respecting or honoring or fearing God. Then he goes on to say, I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in judgment. Don't be partial in your judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. It cuts both ways. It it doesn't lift the rich up over the poor, but neither does it lift the poor up over the rich, CRT, or the black over the white. People are people are people are people, people. And we need to treat people fairly. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. It doesn't say don't judge. It just says make sure your judgment is fair and just. Because that's the way God's judgment is. Should not be partial to the poor. No preferential treatment for them. Because they are poor, just be just. Should not defer to the great or the rich. No respect or deference either way would be showing partiality. And this is not the way that God judges. This is not just. It's not fair either to the poor or to the great. Both are to be treated the same. I, I think um, Jeff pointed out to me there was, a, there was a broadcast on David Wheaton, I think, and some guy was talking about CRT and some of the social justice stuff, and he said, it's as though... Um, Mother Liberty, Lady Justice, they pulled the blindfold off of Lady Justice, right? That's kind of like what's happening. That's partiality. You're supposed to have the blindfold on. That means equal treatment of all people. It's part of our jurisprudence. It's part of our justice system. It's part of our Western civilization. Do you see what's happening? Now, I don't know if we can reclaim it. (laughs) I pray, and we'll do our best in this church to do it, in our small little community here. But maybe it's time for us all to go home. I don't know. But it's really, really something that's going on. And we shouldn't think of it as small or something little. Did not God choose the poor, James says? The heart of God toward the poor is abundantly displayed throughout the Bible. And it's clear that he expects his people whether nation of Israel or the church, to emulate his attitude towards the poor and consider these verses from the Old Testament. I'm not saying we disregard poor people. That would be deference given to them in a wrong way. In Psalm 68.10, you provided your goodness for the poor, O God. In Psalm 72.12, listen to this. For he will deliver the needy, but... When he cries for help, not based on what group he's in, when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. But it's when he cries for help. And the same attitude towards the poor is echoed in the New Testament where in Galatians 2.10, the apostles in Jerusalem admonished Paul to remember the poor. And Paul says, which I was eager to do, but who were the poor that he was talking about? It was the poor saints in Jerusalem, where Paul was taking collections for the poor saints in Jerusalem, Acts 24.17, compared with Galatians 2.10. And in Romans 15.26, we read, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Remember I told you there are different categories of poor, and if you do an in-depth study of the poor in the scriptures, you're going to find that many verses speak of the poor, are speaking of the pious poor, the righteous poor, the poor that are part of the covenant people of Israel, or the poor that are part of the church. That is not to say we disregard the poor that are outside the walls of our church, but it is to say that there is a difference. The people of God... Oppressed by their enemies, yet still depending on him to come through on their behalf, are seen in Psalm ten, fourteen through eighteen. These are the pious poor. Or Psalm seventy two, four, or verses twelve and fourteen of Psalm seventy two. There are such things as those who are slothful poor. Remember in Second Thessalonians? If any man should not work, neither should he eat. Oh ouch. What do you do with that? No, you have pity on, on those guys that don't work, right? Because they don't have a job and they're give them food. Well, I think there's a place to help people that don't have food. But if they will not work, <laughs> emphasis on will, volition. Are there people like that around today? You betcha. And we need to treat people in a proper way biblically. And help them if we can. There's such as the slothful poor, and God doesn't deliver or favor them. There are the poor who are disobedient, Proverbs 30, verse 9. Almost all the references to caring for the poor in the Bible are references to the poor within the covenant people of Israel or the church. Now, Paul's deep concern for the poor believers in Jerusalem is just one example. He provides us with a rubric that as believers... We should do good to all people. That's what I'm saying. You don't turn a blind eye to people that are in need if you can help them. But the priority is especially those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6:10. You see the emphasis? Now we have not been mandated nor can we as the church be the social custodian for all of society. That is not what the church is about. That is the social gospel. That is CRT brought into the church. That is not our calling as believers, individually or corporately. Good works, yes, but alleviation of poverty in the world, are you kidding me? That's not the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is redemption from sin. It's a gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. So as a summary of That first inconsistency, God's eye is on the poor with concern and compassion, but this does not distinguish or separate out or prefer the poor as an oppressed group. He doesn't do that. That now lay claim to a status of victimhood and demand restitution because of who they are. That's not what is taught in the Scripture. That would be inconsistent with the character and nature of God. God is not partial. James identifies the poor as the ones chosen of God to be rich in faith. Do you think he's talking about the poor in the world? All over? Or is he designating, putting a little bit finer point to it? And heirs of the kingdom promised to those who love him. Those poor, the pious poor. Second inconsistency with their faith. Contrary to the name by which they had been called. Verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now we're getting a beat on, on what rich he's talking about. He's not talking about some elders in the church that are rich or a Bible teacher that's rich. He's talking about some who are blaspheming the name. And we know that he's kind of switching things up because he's got a huge contrast of right at the beginning of the verse. He says, but, James challenged his readers, but you on the other hand, rather than following the lead of God, your father, you have behaved differently towards the poor. You have dishonored. That, simply put, in his case study, it shows that their treatment of the poor man was dishonoring. It was hurtful, unkind, disrespectful to treat the poor in their assembly in the way that they did. Here, you, you stand over here. Don't sit in the good seat. Or you sit here at my footstool. Don't miss the fact that these poor that James is speaking about are in the assembly of believers and it is intimated that they are rich in faith. And he says, he asks them a question. Is it not or do they not? Two questions that focus on the attention of their failure. Consider the ones that you're especially singling out here, people. And you're honoring them. Aren't they the very ones who give you so much grief? What are you doing? And why are you doing these? He says, your motives are evil. And that kind of treatment of the rich toward the poor would also be a display of partiality. It would just be from another perspective. And their partiality, it's all over this passage. You see, they were being partial towards the rich and partial towards the poor. I know of a struggle that I had early on uh, when I was a missionary. I wasn't always a Christian. 20 years old, and I got involved in missions and went through the training and everything. And after you get done with the training, you're going to go to mission field, you have to go out and beg money. No, no, that's not right. You, you have to do deputation. We called it deputation. Um, and I had a real struggle with that because I viewed it as going out and begging for money. And I didn't like that. I didn't understand. And I had to have someone teach me that I was providing an opportunity for other believers to enter into partnership with us in the mission that we were going to perform. We are kind of like the tip of the spear. And they were helping us. To do the job that we needed to do and were called to do. Uh, But I also remember that there were some models out there of, of support gathering, if you will, where you target certain people of economic strata. And I thought, I ain't never gonna do that ever in a million years. I will not do that. But some groups did that, they really cultivated the rich. They took them on trips, they had dinners for them and so forth and so on to get them on board with their ministry. Some of you guys know about this stuff, okay? And and that's partiality. That's wrong. I didn't know it at the time. I just knew I'm not gonna do that. I refuse to do that. That's not right. But once I understood that it was an opportunity to just involve people in the ministry that God had called us to and that we could become partners, it was way easier. And I realized this isn't begging for money. This is giving people an opportunity. And we had such dear supporters, didn't we? Such dear supporters. They stuck with us all that almost two decades. And they, they were able to see by their gifts and by their prayers a church planted where there once was none in that people group. And that, that's their reward as well as ours. It's very cool. So you've got to understand The way that they were acting was inconsistent with their faith. And he says, look at who you're preferring here. They're the ones that give you the greatest problem. James is challenging the believers by showing them how inconsistent their partiality toward the rich and against the poor was with their faith. Third inconsistency. It was inconsistent with the royal law. You are sinning. Again, his boldness is just... Wow, I can imagine the people in his congregation just kind of like ducked when he came around, you know. He's strong. He says in verses 8 and 9, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now this is interesting, the royal law, means the law that is sovereign, it is supreme, and it's all binding. James 1.25 uses the royal law as a term to describe the complete word of God. Look over at 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be pleased in what he does. He's talking, he's just using that term, royal law. It's not like a royal law written, boop, this is the royal law. He does use a reference, okay, to the Old Testament. We're going to go there in closing. But it's not just that precise. It's talking about the whole word of God. And he says on, uh, Jesus explained it in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He says, Jesus did, on these two commandments depend the whole law, and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, if you will, the Bible of their day. He says, on these two commandments, Paul said, love is fulfillment of the law. What's he talking He's talking about the word of God. Romans 13.10, James used the royal laws of referring to the essence, the sum, the substance of the complete word of God. And and when James chose as a summary of the complete word of God for his quotation, he went to Leviticus 19.18. Weren't we just in Leviticus? Turn back there in closing. Leviticus 19.18. He quoted from here, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Can I just suggest to you that James had partiality on his mind when he was writing this text? Okay? Because we just read verses 14 and 15, talking about you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And then verse 16 don't slander among your people and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor for I am the Lord. In verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. Look at that. You can correct your neighbor, but you shall not incure sin because of him. You don't treat him poorly just because of who he is. You use justice, you use the truth, you use the royal law, the word of God. And then he goes to verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what he's really saying here is that the entire section is is God's teaching on interpersonal relationships and and how they were to guard against being partial to the poor or giving deference to the rich. Instead, they were to judge their neighbors fairly and were to judge each other fairly. James 2.9 says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin. You're committing sin. You know, Some of us that have been Christians for a long time, we really don't believe in in sinless perfection, but we really don't talk much about sin anymore. But do you realize you commit sin every single day? We're sinners saved by grace, all of us, every single one of us. And we need to be able to identify the sin in our own lives and confess it and keep on walking with God. James said, you're sinning if you're doing that, you are a transgressor. And it's better if you love your neighbor as yourself and fulfill the royal law because then you'll be doing well. You'll be doing good. Okay? So next week, because we're out of time, next week I want you to come back because we're going to wrap up this section when we consider verses 12 and 13 and we're going to grapple with the question, will Christians face judgment? Will Christians face judgment? Because... You see, in those two verses, it says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 12 says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Uh Uh-oh, what? So do Christians experience judgment? So you come back next week and we'll talk about that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the clear teaching of your word And Father, I realize that some of these sociological issues that are encroaching upon the church are a bit confusing, but Lord, I also realize that they're very important that we at least identify them and warn the flock. And so I pray that if there is confusion, that just by talking through some of these issues with other believers or with the leadership, if you have a question, that we can be able to help one another understand how to do well. (laughs) in this church and with one another, Father. And forgive us for the affinities that we we enjoy with one another, Father, that sometimes can be partial. God, mature us and, and help us to be able to reach out to those that are unlike us, that uh, don't live in the same way that we live or or possibly have the same blessings that we have, or or those that Father, have more blessings than we have because it cuts both ways all the time. Help us not to break off into groups, Lord, but to be the one body of Jesus Christ, the one new creation. And Father, let us love one another because that's what will be a witness to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.